Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. My name is Vilus Kubekas, and I am the assistant editor of RevDem. Today, our guest is Carlo Invernizzi Acete, the author of What is Christian Democracy? Politics, Religion, and Ideology. On September 24th, RevDem will host a special symposium entitled The Past and Present of Christian Democracy that will be organized around Carlo Invernizzi Acete's book. For this occasion, we gather to talk about Christian democracy. Hello, Carlo, and thank you for agreeing to talk. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, let's start our interview biographical question. The book on Christian democracy is your second. Your first one was about moral absolutes in democratic society, and your latest that you co-authored is on technopopulism. These are quite different questions and quite different topics. So could you tell us more about how did you become interested in the topic of Christian democracy? And to add to this question, I wanted to ask about the methodology that you use in your book. Uh, you call it a conceptual approach, closely following the ideas of Michael Friedman. So I was wondering what does this approach can tell us, what new can, can this approach tell us about Christian democracy? All right, well, thank you. I should maybe make clear from the start that differently from uh, uh, most people who've written about Christian democracy, I do not come from this political family. Uh, I'm not a Christian Democrat. My, uh, my, my political background is different. I'm not even originally a Christian. Uh, I, uh, my background is from a much more secular perspective in Italy. So I was always interested in Christianity, initially at least, as a phenomenon of power. Uh, being born in Italy, where the Vatican resides, uh, the church always, uh, the church and Christianity appeared as a phenomenon of power, a phenomenon that you had to understood if you wanted to understand politics. And it is from this perspective that I've always been fascinated in the way Christian ideas play out in politics. And so power was the way in. And the second key concept I encountered once I, once I started studying the way in which Christian principles affect politics, especially in, in Europe, was the concept of truth. Of course, Christian uh, politics is, around, is organized around this idea of uh, politics of truth. Christian principles are assumed to by Christians, not necessarily by me, to, to, to be based in a revealed religion which articulates some fundamental political truths. And uh, therefore, a Christian democracy and in general, the, the, these two concepts, the relationship between power and truth were the way in. Uh, how does truth work in politics? So that was, I first began studying Catholic social doctrine and its critique of relativism. Uh, it, for my doctoral dissertation, which became my first book. From there, I moved to study Christian democracy because I was interested in trying to look at... So the Catholic social doctrine seemed to me very much a, a tradition of a politics of truth. Uh, the Vatican assumes that its own doctrine is true and uh, for that reason criticizes relativism very sharply. From this tradition, I became interested in seeing, is there a way of mobilizing Christian principles which is not anti-relativist and for that reason has a problematic relationship with the democratic political form? Whereas I, I think that the historically Catholic social doctrine has had a much more troubled relationship with the democratic political form. I was interested in seeing, can, is there a form of Christianity that can reconcile itself with democracy. And this is what led me to Christian democracy, which was also, of course, a phenomenon of power, uh, an extremely influential tradition throughout European history. Uh, so again, truth and power are the, are the ways into this tradition. Actually, it seems like a very different concept, but uh, the study of technopopulism or how technocracy and populism affect uh, politics today is still motivated by the same underlying interests which is, I understand both technocracy and populism in different but symmetrical ways as forms of politics of truth. 
technocrats assume they have access to some kind of truth the, 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 the revealed by their scientific expertise and populists assume that they have access to some kind of truth which is the popular will the true popular will as Jan Werner Muller uh, has well described and so I'm always interested in, in the interplay between truth and power in politics and that's what led me to study Christian democracy you also asked a second question which had to do with uh, the method I approach in this book, the method I use in the book to study Christian democracy, and I call it a conceptual approach. Again, this is mainly due to the kind of literature that already exists on Christian democracy today. Most of it, as well as having written, been written by Christian Democrats, is written by either historians or political scientists. And for this reason, it's very much focused on actors, strategies, and outcomes. Most of the existing literature uh, is very historical, very empirical, very political science. -y. Bizarrely, there is not much had been written before I wrote this book about the ideology of Christian democracy. What were these guys who were so influential actually thinking? What were their premises? What was their philosophy? Uh, it's funny, but there must be thousands of books entitled like What is Liberalism? Or What is Conservatism? Uh, up to the one I wrote, there was no book yet written on what is Christian democracy from the point of view of ideology and political theory. So that's mainly why I decided to look at this concept, in, uh, 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 this, the concept from this perspective, adopting Michael Frieden's conceptual approach. I was interested in the concepts more than the history or the outcomes that had been looked at before. Fascinating. So now we may turn our discussion about the origins of Christian democracy. In your book, you reconstruct the main ideological elements uh, of this ideological tradition, namely anti-materialism, personalism, popularism, subsidiarity, social capitalism, and Christian inspiration where you often refer to many Christian Democrat politicians and Catholic intellectuals, but it seems to me that the key intellectual resource in this reconstruction remains French neo-scholastic philosopher Jacques Maritain. So somehow, as I see it a bit paradoxically, this neo-scholastic thinker was at the center of forging Christian democratic tradition. So I was wondering if you could comment on this interesting relationship between the political and the philosophical and indeed the theological and Christian democratic thought. How does Christian democracy relate to neo-scholasticism? Yes, thank you for this question. Let me begin by saying, I'm not sure why you say paradoxically, uh, the, the idea that a political movement would be uh, have its origins in a philosophical tradition doesn't seem to me so surprising. Marxism is another example of uh, a political movement originating from a philosophical one. Uh, and I don't know, some would argue that liberalism uh, has a similar structure if you think that thinkers such as John Locke or John Stuart Mill have a comparable role. While I accept that Jacques Maritain and Neoscholasticism have a central position in the Christian democratic tradition, or at least in the part of the Christian democratic tradition that interests me, which was the ideas, as I said, the concepts behind it, I want to emphasize that I do not think they are the only thinkers that, uh, that, that feed into this tradition, which, as I insist at several points in the book, is a, a broad tent. Uh, there are many other sources that feed into the Christian democratic intellectual tradition. I guess the first and most important and most complex one is the tradition I mentioned before of Catholic social doctrine and the Vatican thought in general. Maybe we'll get more to think about the content of Christian democracy, but if we assume that Christian democracy is an attempt to reconcile Christianity and in particular Catholicism with modern democracy, as I define it in my book, this has its origin, this, the, the, the need to reconcile the two has its origin in, in, in what Pombini has called a traumatic encounter between them, the conflict between them, which has very much its origins in the positions of the Vatican. Uh, that the Vatican adopted after the French Revolution in the 18th and especially 19th centuries uh, 
with respect to modernity and liberalism. So the Vatican thought is, of course, an important source because they are reacting to the Vatican constantly, even though I think there is a distinction between Vatican thought and Christian democratic thought. Vatican is an important source I refer to often in the book. But then there are other thinkers that are also very important. Again, if there's Jacques Maritain, I'll come to at the end, is crucial. But in France, there are others among in, amongst the personalists, Emmanuel Meunier, uh, very important personist, and uh, Robert Schumann, uh, French tradition. In Italy, I refer to many other important thinkers that had a decisive uh, role. Uh, uh, Sturzo, uh, the founder of the Italian Popularist Party, and uh, La Pira, uh, I, 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 the former mayor of Florence. Uh, and then in Germany, Adenauer, so there are many, many thinkers that contribute to this tradition. Why I give such an important role to Maritain without assuming that he's the only or the most important one are two reasons. One is that as a neoscholastic, he's a very synthetic thinker. So he synthesizes many things within his thoughts, not least the Vatican tradition and the personalism of people like Mounier, but many other influences converge in, in, in Maritain, who is a very systematic scholastic thinker, and therefore it is a useful way to expose these principles because he's a, such a synthetic thinker. And the second reason is that he was also extremely influential. Uh, many of the most important Christian Democrats were deeply influenced by Maritain's thought, even though Maritain always himself had an ambiguous relationship with Christian Democratic parties, Many Christian Democrats thought of themselves as Maritanians, both within the Vatican. Uh, you know, Pius XII had a very strong cooperation with, uh, with uh, intellectual cooperation with Maritain, but also, again, many of the people I mentioned, Robert Schumann, strong reader of uh, Maritain. Lapira was a um, scholar of Le Pen, uh, of, not Le Pen, excuse me, of Maritain. So, he was a synthetic and an influential thinker. And for this reason, he's convenient in the kind of intellectual endeavor I was giving to, to try to give a synthesis of what Christian democratic thought was. He often appears relevant. So, uh, yes, that's, that's how I justify the role of Maritain in my book. And in general, I justify the role of ideas in politics by saying that without reducing political action to an implementation of primary ideological principles, what I'm trying to do in this book, as I said, is correct for a bias in the existing literature, which uh, excludes the role of ideas in politics. If you read a book, the book, what is the maybe the most important book in, the, in, in English on Christian democratic tradition, the one by Satis Kalivas, he explicitly says that, I, that he will not pursue an, what he calls an ideational approach, because he says he focuses on strategies, outcomes, and actors. Without denying the importance of, of strategies, outcomes, and actors, I think that ideas matter to politics, and that's why I focused on them, and this is what led me to think, to, to look at the the philosophers underpinning this. Very interesting. Next, I wanted to ask about Catholic understanding of democracy. Christian democracy, just like Catholicism itself, went a long way since its inception in the late 19th century to the present day. Famously, Pope Pius IX denounced progress, liberalism, and modern civilization as incompatible with Catholicism. And indeed, for a long time in politics, many Catholics acted as the agents of the anti-enlightenment tradition, if we may call it so, rejecting democratic order and embracing other political forms, such as monarchism and authoritarianism. However, after the Second World War, those who have advocated for such ideas found themselves on the margins of political life. This interestingly coincided with the uh, beginning of the golden age of Christian democracy in Western Europe. So does this success of Christian democracy mean that Catholics finally made themselves at home with democracy? And why did Christian democracy became so appealing and, and dominant in Western Europe, especially in Italy and Germany during the post-war period? 
Okay, again, here you have two questions which are quite different. I'll take them in turn, but they're both important questions. Does the success of Christian democracy mean that Catholics finally made themselves at home with democracy? I think that's an interesting and tricky question because I define, as I said, Christian democracy as the attempt to reconcile in particular Catholicism, but in general Christianity with modern democracy. So that was the goal. But as I also said, there was a trauma, there was a traumatic, ex the, this, the need for this reconciliation stemmed from the presumption, at least in Catholic versions, uh, and in Europe in particular, that there was a tension between them. The way in which Christian Democrats operated this reconciliation, I argue in the book, depended crucially on the development of what I call a philosophy of history, a particular philosophy of history, which I think offers the key to the answer of whether Christian democracy means that Christianity is now reconciled with democracy, because it's complicated. This philosophy of history hinges on um, a distinction that can be usefully summarized in terms of uh, two concepts introduced in the late 19th century by Carlo Maria Curci, an Italian Jesuit thinker, the concept, the distinction being the, between the thesis of Christianity and Catholicism in particular, and the hypothesis. The thesis, he said, and this is really the core of this philosophy of history, the thesis is a set of immutable and eternal principles. So talking again about the concept of truth, Jesus Christ is supposed to have revealed a series of fundamental truths that are eternal and immutable and will never change. That's the Christian thesis. However, there is also a hypothesis. And the hypothesis is the manifestation of these eternal and immutable principles in different historical periods. Uh, the Christian hypothesis is the way in which the Christian fundamental truths and eternal truths are manifested in different historical periods. And the manifestations of his eternal and, and, and immutable truths is historical and therefore different. Christianity therefore has different manifestations in different historical periods, according to this particular strand of Christianity, which Christian democracy appropriates. And the claim is that in modernity, the fundamental and eternal immutable truths of Christianity revealed by Jesus Christ manifest themselves as democratic principles. Uh, this distinction between the, the thesis and the hypothesis of Christianity enable, means that there is actually no contradiction within the fact that in 1500, the Catholic Church was for monarchy and in 1950, it became for democracy because it's history that changed, not the message. Therefore, because the context changes, the manifestation of the concept changes into a different message. So through this philosophy of history, through this distinction between thesis and hypothesis, Christians are able to reconcile Christianity with democracy and say that in this historical period, Christianity is manifested as a as support for democracy. To be a Christian today means that you are for democracy. But it's important to finish my answer to the question to point out, does this mean that Christianity is now at home in democracy? Well, again, it's complicated. Yes and no. For now, in this historical period, Christianity is manifested as a commitment to democracy. But this leaves open the possibility that in, if historical circumstances change again, as they always do, Christianity will have to take different hypothetical forms. And therefore, Christianity is at home for a while. I would say Christianity is historically, uh, for now, in the present historical period, at home in democracy. But this doesn't mean that from now on, to be a Christian means to be a Democrat. So, and again, let me emphasize that this is a very particular interpretation of Christianity, which is what I call the Christian democratic interpretation of Christianity. 
Uh, as I said, this is already different from Catholic social doctrine. The Vatican's position in this respect is different and even more ambivalent, in my opinion. And then there can be other positions which are much more friendly to democracy. Uh, so it, it's complicated. Uh, but this is what I think is the Christian democratic position. Uh, so that was my answer to the first question. Is Christianity at home in democracy, in Christian democracy? Well, yes, for now. Why has this particular synthesis or this, this broader synthesis of Christianity and democracy been so appealing in Western Europe? That's another very broad question, which I'll take just a little time to answer. But let me first begin by saying that this philosophy of history is only one aspect of a broader set of concepts that you mentioned personalism, popularism, subsidiarity. So the, what became popular is not just that philosophy of history. It's a number of other concepts which I try to reconstruct in the book and I won't get into now, otherwise that, the answer would be 400 pages long, like the book. But to answer your specific question, why was this popular or appealing and became, I would say, even hegemonic in many countries of Western Europe in the post-Second World War period, there are many reasons, of course, especially if you have to explain a hegemony that lasts so many decades in such a volatile continent as Europe. But let me focus on three reasons in particular, which I mentioned in the book. First, redemption from fascism. In the two countries that you mentioned, in Italy and Germany, where Christian democracy was most popular, one cannot forget that these were the two countries where fascism had come to power mo most prominently, Nazism in Germany and uh, fascism in Italy. And what's important to remember is that, and many, especially in Italy, but also in Germany, want to forget this today, these regimes, these fascist regimes were popular. Uh, there were many Nazis in Germany and there were many fascists in Italy. And they didn't suddenly disappear in 1945. So there was a big question of how a big part of the population could be moved from, and these guys who were fascists were fascists for many complicated reasons, but one of the most important ones is a sense of commitment to order, uh, tradition, and anti-communism. So what do you do with these people who are right-wing, like order, like tradition, and are not communists in the post-war period? Christian democracy, in my opinion, became the vehicle through which Many of these people who had been maybe not rabid Nazis and rabid communists, uh, rabid fascists, but, you know, conservative, order-prone, right-wing, traditionalist, anti-communist, how could they be introduced into a democratic framework? Christian democracy became the vehicle that, that offered some kind of moral redemption through a return to order and tradition and a kind of even depoliticization it became the respectable way of being, a of, of being a conservative Democrat. So I think Christian democracy, because fascism became illegal, both in Italy and in Germany, that was an important aspect of its, of its success. It became the legitimate right. The, uh, the way in which we could reintroduce into a new context a large part of the existing population. The second important one was the Cold War, obviously. Uh, the United States needed an anti-communist strong, but it couldn't be fascist anymore, actor in Europe as a bulwark against communism. And many in Europe were not communist, at least half. And if you look at election results, probably more. Uh, and anti-communism, the, the cover of my book has a uh, famous poster from Chris, the Italian Christian democracy in the 1950s. Uh, and it is a, the, the symbol of the Italian Christian democracy was a shield with a cross on it. And what is this a shield against? It is a shield against communism. Christian democracy was always an oppositional project. And when it became dominant, it became dominant as a shield against communism. Because all of those who didn't want a socialist revolution in Europe, who were many in Europe themselves, and then importantly, also those who uh, had actually, quote unquote, liberated Italy and some parts of Germany invested on. So this anti-socialist project. And then the third and important, so first is redemption from fascism. Second, anti-socialism, anti-communism, Cold War. The, 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 the defenders of the West in 
the context of the Cold War were the Christian Democrats. And the third is adaptability. An important, an important aspect is of Christian democracy is, which is already implicit a little bit in the philosophy of history I talked about before, is this idea that Christian democracy is a pragmatic project of historical adaptation. It has a reference to some immutable truths, but it wants to adapt them to a given historical context. And this adaptability, I want to say this pragmatism is principled. It is an, a core element of the Christian democratic ideology to be adaptable to the time. And of course, offered important ideological cover for what became essentially parties of power. Parties that adapted themselves to all conditions and were able to change according to the times in important and complex ways and therefore retain the position of power that they had, that they had initially had in the second post-war period. So there are many reasons why Christian democracy was so popular and so effective, I have indicated these three, redemption from fascism, anti-communism, and adaptability. Great. I think now we must touch on the topic of Christian democracy's role in the emergence of the European Union. As you have noted in your book, for Christian Democrats, European integration became a normative ideal. Could you tell us more about what kind of Europe and, and its integration does Christian democracy entail? And what does the examination of the history of Christian democracy tell us about the European Union itself? All right, here another important question, which will necessitate, I hope, an answer that's not too long-winded. But let me begin by noting that Something Christian Democrats often reiterate in their discourse, but the general population doesn't recall as often. The European Union was a project initially fostered primarily by Christian Democrats, uh, a product of Christian democracy. The three founding fathers that are always referred to, Alcide de Gasperi, Conrad Adenauer, and Robert Schuman, were all Christian Democrats. At the Treaty of Rome in the signing in 1958, all of the signatories who are there are from Christian democratic parties. Uh, so Christian democracy was, in, and the, since its inception, the European People's Party, which is the European Christian Democratic Party, has consistently been the largest single party in the European Parliament. Most of the most important positions have historically been exercised by Christian Democrats. So Christian Democrats often, rightly or wrongly, think of the European Union as their brainchild. This is reflected in the European Union's institutional form still today. It, the fact that Christian Democrats made the European Union is still visible in what the European Union is today. And I think reading the European Union through this lens can teach us many important things about, that otherwise are inexplicable about the European Union. Let me begin by one point in particular. We haven't mentioned yet, but it's central to the Christian democratic ideology. The concept of subsidiarity, which is enshrined in the treaties, is originally a Christian democratic concept and emerges in the Christian tradition as a critique of what I would call the counter concept, which is the concept of sovereignty. What's important to realize here and to understand what so subsidiarity means, a concept which, again, I reiterate, is in the European treaties and is at the core of what the European Union is today. To understand subsidiarity, to understand that Christianity, and in particular Catholicism, was always very skeptical of the concept of the nation state and of sovereignty. Of course, the nation state comes together with the idea of sovereignty, which comes together with the idea of separation of church and state. Uh, with the French Revolution. The nation, the sovereign nation state, is a state that separates religion and politics. Uh, you see this already if you want in Hobbes. Uh, but it's clear after the French Revolution that, that, that sovereignty already involves an idea of secularity as a concept. And of course, it's ma politically manifested in the fact of you know, the civil constitution of the clergy after the French Revolution. And th that is the really traumatic element which leads to the, the, the church to react against the French Revolution and the principles of modernity. 
usually these are seen as democracy and liberalism, but sovereignty is also at the core of this. Against sovereignty, the church has from the beginning developed a different idea, which is the idea of subsidiarity, which involves a very different articulation of the relationship between politics and religion. Subsidiarity is the idea that not all power is concentrated in one place, the state. Power is dispersed throughout society in different organizational levels. Uh, different organizational levels. The person, the individual, the neighborhood, uh, the county, the political community, and ultimately above that, the international community or humanity as a whole. So there is an idea of distribution of power in different levels, not of concentration of power in one point. But why is this significant in terms of the relationship between politics and religion? Because according to the concept of subsidiarity, and this is what sometimes the lawyers of the European Union forget, what is it that organizes the relationship of, between the different levels? How do you know which level is the appropriate level at which to organize a particular type of polity? Is the schooling a matter for the municipality, the, uh, the, the, the national state or the supranational state? There is no answer to this concept in the concept of subsidiarity itself. It is determined by a broader idea of natural order or temporal common good, which is inherently religion, religious in the, in the Christian idea. So religion is the order that structures the different levels in which the different types of power are organized in the Christian democratic idea. Religion is the order that structures the subdivision of powers in different levels at the personal, uh, local, national, and supranational level. So subsidiarity is a deeply religious concept because it implies that religion is the structuring fabric of politics. That's the part that is less often understood and why subsidiarity poses these insoluble problems where people say, what's the right level at which, uh, the lowest possible right level to, to organize something? There's no answer to that. Unless you have a set of values like Christians who develop this concept actually have to give you those answers. So subsidiarity has this religious background without which the concept becomes almost incomprehensible. And that is what we have in the European Union today. An originally religious concept, which has then been deprived of this religious foundation and is therefore now difficult to understand. And what remains is essentially only the critique of sovereignty. What the EU is today is an attack on the, the, the French Revolution and the idea of national sovereignty, uh, but uh, deprived of the positive set of values which gave substance to this idea. Uh, the, I, the idea that uh, the, the distribution of, of values should be done essentially by the church, because who is the supranational power that stands above the nation state according to uh, the traditional Catholic theology? Obviously the church itself. So church is inherently internationalist, and we see this internationalism in the European Union. But so it's what I want to emphasize is this is the origin of the European Union. You see that the European Union remains, I, I, I call this as a hermit crab. I use a metaphor of a hermit crab. The hermit crabs are those crabs in that you sometimes find on the beach that inhabit the shell of some other mollusk. Uh, the shell of the European Union was created by Christian Democrats and remains. The institutional framework is this Christian democratic structure. However, the, Christ, the, the, the Christian democratic soul that originally created this, the mollusk, has died. And now liberals and social democrats have inhabited this shell and fight with it. They are constrained by it and also try to change it. And therefore, yes, I interpret the structure of the European Union today in terms of this metaphor of a hermit crab with a Christian democratic shell, and let's just speak quickly, a neoliberal crab within it. Uh, and so you can understand a lot about the European Union, I think, if you see it through its origins and through its history. And what happened to it was that it became this strange structure where you have neoliberals trying to use Christian democratic elements 
or structures to advance their own agenda. Wow, excellent, excellent. One thing that I found particularly fascinating in your book is that you give attention to Christian democracy in Latin America. In this way, you are able to approach Christian democracy as a truly global phenomenon whose impact reaches far beyond European politics. So would you care to compare these two different experiences, namely the European one and the Latin American one? What are the main similarities as well as dividing lines between these two versions of Christian democracy? And uh, what were the main challenges of exporting Christian democracy beyond Europe? Again, many questions, all of them important. It's gonna be difficult to be as brief as I would like, but I will have to because I know that we are running out of time. So Christian democracy in Latin America is a derivative phenomenon. It is as you use a language of export. It, it, it was taken from, uh, originally the idea of reconciling Christianity and democracy is a European idea, but then it becomes an appropriated for different reasons in Latin America. Uh, so it is a phenomenon of diffusion or export. Because of this, it has often been assumed that Christian Democrats in Latin America were milder, paler, less, let's say, distinct versions of their European origins. The argument I try to make in the book, in the chapter on Christian democracy in Latin America is that that is not the case. It's actually the opposite. In fact, Christian democracy in Latin America was often starker and radicalized many of the original tendencies of Christian democracy in Europe. And for this reason, it's extremely interesting because it, it manifests many of the features of Christian democracy in a more uh, extreme and therefore clear form. Uh, I will take a few examples, but uh, I argue that in, especially in the immediate post-war period in Europe, Christian democracy was a phenomenon of the center. Uh, it, it, it positioned itself according to this language of the third way, which of course was then taken up by Blair in the 1990s, but was originally a Christian democratic concept uh, as a centrist phenomenon, uh, as a phenomenon which was neither, uh, you know, socialist in the context of the Cold War, nor American style liberal, but was a distinctive kind of you know, centrist, uh, dignified conservatism. In Latin America, this centrism, this tercerismo, this third way took a very different and more stark and I would say conservative form. Uh, the, the, the conflict there was not yet between, you know, Soviet style communism and American liberalism, but it was more about the legacy of the independence movements. Traditionally, the, the independence movements of Latin America, the, I'm talking about the 20s and the 30s in the origin point of Latin American Christian democracy. The conflict there was between these li liberal modernizers, secularizers who had done the independence in many countries of Latin America, such as Chile or Venezuela uh, and, or Mexico, and the traditionalists, the Christians who had traditionally been against the independence movement tied to the old Spanish order. Christian Democrats here adopt tercerismo in a very different way. They become a mediating, between the, a mediating force between these two oppositions by becoming those who argue for conservative values within the modern secular republics. So they are actually much more on the right than in the center in the beginning. They, they are, where, because the, as the anti-independentist old order and Sian regime forces die, Christian Democrats become the way of rein, reinterpreting the old order within the new and sort of far more to the right initially than in Europe. Then it's actually reversed. You see that in the 1960s and 70s in Europe, Christian democracy moves a little bit to the left. 
uh, in Germany, there's the Grand Coalition. In Italy, in, starting in 1963, the Centro Sinistra. Christian democracy becomes more, more favorable to welfareism, also to contain rising social tensions. Uh, and th there is a slight movement to the left to, uh, in Europe. In Latin America, this is much more radical, much more radical. The Christian democracy of the 60s and 70s in Latin America is developmentalist. It's influenced by liberation theology. It's, it's a much, and again, here it's a consequence of the Cold War. It became the way in which in Latin America, the center right tried to resist socialist revolution through massive developmentalist investment in infrastructure, in welfare programs. So there is, I would say that in the 60s and 70s, Latin America, Latin American Christian democracy in figures like Caldera and Mon in Venezuela and Montalva in Chile are progressives. Today, they would be considered progressive. They're for state investments in an anti-socialist perspective, but still deeply much more progressive than Christian democracy ever was in Europe uh, in the 60s and 70s. These are just a couple of examples of the argument I tried to make that Christian democracy in Latin America is actually more radical, even though it is a derivative phenomenon, than Christian democracy in Europe. Great. In your book, you connect your historical analysis with a normative claim about the essence of Christian democracy, arguing that Christian democracy has relevance to contemporary politics. Was in my last question, I would like to touch on the rise of populist tendencies in contemporary politics. Some politicians standing at the forefront of the populist wave in Europe, perhaps most prominently Viktor Orban, who has advanced nativist populist agenda in Hungary, have presented themselves as the true Christian Democrats, suggesting that Christian democracy is all about the strengthening of national identity vis-a-vis -vis the allegedly globalist tendencies within the European Union. Having written this impressive book, how do you see this relationship between Christian democracy and the rise of nativist populism? Is there a connection between these two? Uh, I mean, in genealogical way, or and can Christian democracy help to counter nativist populism, or should we look for another intellectual resources for successful defense against right-wing tendencies in Europe and beyond? Okay, again, thank you for the important many questions that you've asked, which enable me to touch on another important concept of Christian democracy, which we haven't touched on now. Uh, up till now, which is that of popularism. Obviously, the Christian Democratic parties have sometimes been called popular parties, the Partito Popolare Italiano in Italy, and at the European level, there is the European People's Party. In the book, in my last chapter, when I touch on the set of issues you're asking about, I try to draw an important distinction between the idea of populism and the idea of popularism. And this distinction is basically revolves around the way you understand the people. An important aspect of the way in which populism understands the people, theorized, for instance, by Ernesto Laclau, is that it is oppositional. The people is defined by what it is not. The people is defined by the fact that it is not elite, or it is defined by the fact that it is not foreigner. Uh, the, as... Laclau says the inherently political dimension of the populist idea of the people is that it is oppositional. It's like the Schmittian idea of friend and enemy. The friend is defined by the fact that he's not an enemy. The people are defined by the fact that they are not something else. This is the core of populism, which gives us this confrontational, oppositional, deeply political in Laclau's sense dimension. In this Schmittian concept of politics, which is, in my opinion, very foreign from the Christian democratic idea of what politics is, even though Schmidt was a conservative Christian, but a different kind of Christian. Popularism has a very different idea of the people. The people is defined not by what it is not, but it is defined in the popularist tradition by the set of values that it espouses. Uh, not by what it opposes, but by what it stands for. And the key idea in this concept of popularism developed by Sturzo is an analogy between 
with the personalist tradition, the idea that the person is a body with a soul, a people is a set of individuals which share a common set of principles. And according to the Christian tradition, again, here the Vatican is, uh, Pius XII in his famous Christmas message of 1945 says the same thing. A people is different from a mass because it shares a set of principles and that's its soul. And these principles is Christianity. That's, that's the catch. To be a real people from a popularist perspective, you have to ha- share a set of Christian values and principles which unite you together. And therefore, the unity and coherence of the popularist idea of the people is not given by its opposition to the foreigner or to the elite, but by its sharing of a certain set of values and principles, which are essentially the Christian democratic pre, uh, principles, which is why you can have a party called the People's Party, because what they mean by the people is the people who share the Christian democratic principles. So it's a very different idea of the people because its unity comes from within rather than without. It is not defined by opposition, but by a kind of solidarity around a set of principles and values. As such, it is very, it, it, I, as such, I think that the popularist idea of the people is not only at odds, but implies a very different idea of politics than the populist one. Uh, Politics is not a war between friends and enemies. Politics is about the constitution of a people through the creation of a commonality, uh, through the creation of a solidarity, through inclusion rather than exclusion, if you will. This is the Christian democratic tradition and still manifested today, I think, as far as, as somebody like Angela Merkel. We can do this. We can include. We don't have to exclude. So the position of popularism is ultimately universalist. It's ultimately inclusive. Through the concept of subsidiarity, it is ultimately projected at the scale of humanity. Everybody is a people. Christianity is a universal religion. Everybody can become a Christian. Everybody can become a part of the fold. And in fact, inclusion is a key category of this idea of the people. Uh, As such, it is completely at odds with the populist one. They they, they represent different politics. Now, of course, there is the fact, as you mentioned, that some of today's populists claim to be Christian Democrats. Uh, And of course, politicians do this all the time. They try to appropriate labels and change their meaning. And maybe they will succeed, maybe they will fail. I think that in order to succeed, they would have to profoundly transform Christian democracy uh, into something else. I think Orban's type of populism uses Christianity, as you said, as an identity as a way of excluding, as a way of saying who is Christian and who is not. This is profoundly at odds with what I take to be the Christian democratic tradition, which is universalist and inclusive, not exclusive, originally. So is populism, is it possible to reconcile populism and Christian democracy? My answer would be there's a fight right now on within the European People's Party and within Christian, all, within the German CDU, within all Christian democratic parties, there is a fight between those who want to change and go in their van direction and make Christianity into an identity rather than a principle of inclusion and therefore into, into this anti-immigrant, anti-elitist kind of project and those like Angela Merkel who want to retain this more traditional inclusive uh, thing. Christ, Christian democracy could change. They, we, it seems like for a while it seemed that we were that, that the Christian Demo- the inclusive Christian Democrats, the Merkels, were losing. Now Orban has been excluded from the European People's Party. Armin Laschet has taken the reins of the Christian Democrats in Germany. He represents the more Merkelian approach. So the fight is ongoing. I don't know who will win. Christian democracy is not an essence. It may very well change. It would become something different, but uh, Originally, I think there's an important difference between populism and popularism, which tells us two things. First, that Christian democracy was not originally populist. And second, that it could be a 
antidote for it. Yes, I, this is the last point I will say that in the fight against populism, I think popularism can be an important resource, not the only resource. Here again, I relate to most of the existing literature uh, on populism has been written by academics who are, broadly speaking, on the center left, like me. They are social democrats. So if you read the literature on populism, always the answer that they say of how to address populism is, okay, have more social democracy, have more welfare, have more. And I look, personally, I'm all for more social democracy and for more welfare. However, it seems to me that from a political point of view, from an electoral point of view, the idea that people who are now voting for Orban or who are now voting for Salvini or who are now voting for Le Pen will go and vote Social Democrat seems a little implausible. There is a strong component of people who are conservative, who are right wing, who are Christian and therefore against the secularist components, the, the progressivist components of social democracy, and the question is, where are these electors going to go? Christian democracy, in my opinion, can anchor conservatism, anchor Christianity in a democratic context. <laughs> and that is what the role it can be. So it's, it's not about getting votes from the left. It's about how can you move people from the far right to the, to the center right? I'm not either of the far right or of the center right, but I think that the normative potential of Christian democracy or of popularism against populism today is to anchor this exclusionary identitarian tendency in a different kind of Christianity. One that is not exclusionary, but one that is universalist and inclusionary. Thank you so much for your answers. I had the pleasure to talk with Carlo and Vernice Achete. We have been talking on the occasion of a special symposium entitled The Past and Present of Christian Democracy that will take place on September 24. You can find more information about it on Erdem pages in Facebook and Twitter. The symposium will be held online so everyone can join it. Thank you so much for discussing your ideas, Carlo. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for everyone uh, for listening and uh, till the next time.